Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I was actually quite upset. She didn't talk to me as much as I wanted to. I had a, ho- I had a whole spiel I was going to talk to her about, but actually she just said something about the corgis. <laughs> Oh, hello. The birds are tweeting. Birds are tweeting a lot today. Oh, it's lovely. Can you hear them in the background? I'm not in the attics. It's just too hot. So today I'm talking to Thomas Curran, who has written a book, The Perfection Trap. It's very, very good. And as a lot of my interviews, because I'm nosy, I started off asking him uh, how he became interested in perfectionism. I need to change my line, don't I? I need to start with a different opening line. What's your favourite colour? A lot of researchers will say, particularly in the psychological sciences, research is me search. And I think that's very much the case for me. When I was going through the very intense competitive academic system, I was putting a lot of pressure on myself, uh, feeling a lot of pressure coming from outside. And that pressure was creating a lot of psychological issues. I was quite depressed, had anxiety. And I thought it was perfectionism, actually, that was the one thing that was keeping me going, you know, pushing me forward, this kind of facade of hyper-functioning and maximization. But it was only when I sought help that I was able to see that it was actually perfectionism that was causing the problems. And if I could address the perfectionism, then all of these other issues I was experiencing would lose a lot of their power. So that was a kind of epiphany for me. And it really pushed me to learn more about this really curious trait. I wanted to see whether I could make an imprint on the academic and scientific literature. So I did reading and become really fascinated with it. And I spent the last 10 years really finding out more, both about perfectionism and also about myself. So, um, So that's how we got here. Am I right in saying that through your research and studying investigation, investigation sounds very strong, doesn't it? <laughs> there, there's sort of three areas where perfectionism can come from. So ourselves, others, and then wider society. Would that be right? Absolutely. So the more we speak to perfectionistic people, the more we understand that perfectionism is more than just high standards or excessively high standards we set for ourselves. Okay, so this kind of quintessential overstriver, someone that works excessively and then some. It also has a very powerful social strain. And that social strain is a sense that the outside world and everybody in our immediate and global environment expects me to be perfect. And if I'm not perfect, they're watching, they're waiting to pounce. Now, that is a extreme, you know, this is a subjective worldview. It's the way that we view the world. But actually, I mean, you're, you've been in the celebrity world now for many years. You'll know that this is actually a very real uh, experience that's that's expected of people, particularly in the public eye. 
and more and more so with the advent of social media, that's become a more global pressure that people everywhere seem to experience this kind of this kind of excessive need to look, appear, and kind of behave in a way that's perfect. So there's a very powerful social strain to perfectionism. And then there's a third strain, which is called other-oriented perfectionism, and that's perfectionism that's turned outward onto other people, so that I expect you to be perfect, and if you're not perfect, I'm going to let you know. So these kind of three core elements self coming from within social coming from the outside world and other perfectionism projected outwards are what we understand to be the kind of broad perfectionism what we call construct or understanding of perfectionism and so i'm wondering is would the sort of genesis of perfectionism be in religion i wonder because before religion was constructed well i suppose the idea of moral perfectionism I mean, this is a really interesting discussion and a lot of the kind of background work for my book was very much rooted in trying to understand, you know, you know, what is perfection? Where does it come from? Where does it originate? And it's certainly the case that there, you know, over the years, there have been different perspectives on perfectionism and the good life. And you can go back through various philosophies and various religions. So certainly, you know, where we are today is, of course, impacted by certain religious philosophies, Calvinist, Protestant work ethic, you know, so certainly that in today's culture. But my work is really focused in here and now, as, as in like mm. what are the stresses and strains that people are, are exposed to today that come from forces outside of that atmosphere of perhaps religion and more forces that come from the broader, uh, the way that the economy works and how we're um, expected to appear, look, consume and work. Um, so that's kind of been the focus of my research. And so if we look at those things, so let's take work, for example, I suppose there's like a sort of myth, the sort of the harder you work, the more perfect your work is, the more successful you're being. Yes, this is a really big pressure today for young people or people uh, generally that the workplace has become very pressurized, very insecure, and that we kind of have to hustle and grind this kind of hustle grind set ethos that kind of is very strong at the moment. I think what's really interesting here is that, that, that underneath this is this kind of sense that in order to succeed, we need to have excessively high standards. We need to push ourselves really hard. And one of the big myths that I'm trying to bust through my work and, and the research that I've done is to show that perfectionism actually doesn't create the conditions for better performance. And there's two reasons for that. The first reason is that perfectionistic people work really hard, but then they go too far. They go beyond the capacity of the threshold of comfort. They uh, ignore and overlook and kind of don't do things that are rejuvenating, like good sleep, good healthy activities, so like exercise, good diet, and, and kind of push themselves to the point of burnout. So they, they work hard, but they work too hard. But there's also a curious second reason why they don't succeed. And that's that what perfectionists tend to do is on the first when they're first given a task, they'll push everything forward. They'll give everything to try to achieve or succeed. But the moment they encounter difficulty, that's to say the moment they get into a situation where perhaps they feel like they're not succeeding or that the task they're doing is going to end in some kind of failure, what they'll do is they'll withhold all of their effort 
because you can't fail at something that you didn't try at. So what you see is this really curious relationship with perfectionism, where if they think they're going to succeed, they'll put everything forward. But the moment things get tough, perfectionist time tends to withhold their effort. And we see this in lab study after lab study after lab study, this kind of curious withdrawal of effort that perfectionists engage in. Because the problem with perfectionism is when you fail, the shame you feel about that failure, the guilt you feel, the embarrassment you feel is so intense that you'll do everything you can to avoid those feelings occurring. So they withdraw. This is why perfectionism is so highly correlated with procrastination, for instance. You tend to see perfectionists procrastinate a lot, kind of almost as an anxiety management technique, just trying to put off those intense feelings of self-conscious emotions because they're worried about whether they're going to be able to do this. So perfectionism, yes, there's a kind of very big push for perfectionism in the workplace, but I think what we, we kind of misunderstand when we push for perfection is that pursuing perfection ultimately is going to lead to less success not more and there are much healthier ways to strive you know being conscientious being meticulous being diligent you know these things come from a very active optimistic place of i want to improve i want to do better but i can let things go when they're not quite perfect and perfection just simply can't do that and i suppose is perfectionism a symptom of perhaps someone that's carrying a lot of shame anyway maybe or self-loathing absolutely and sort of deficit thinking that is exactly it well so that's where perfectionism starts and this is where we kind of misunderstand perfectionism as i said earlier perfectionism we tend to think is high standards but you don't have to be a perfectionist to have high standards but perfectionists have that high standards because it comes from a place of insecurity it comes from a place of deficit and lack they feel inside themselves that they are imperfect that deep down they know they're flawed and they have deficiencies and shortcomings, like all human beings do. And everything that they do from that moment, that realisation onwards, is to try and disguise and conceal those imperfections from the world, to put on a facade of, of hyper-functioning, of maximisation, of a kind of perfect life and lifestyle that we want other people to see. And that's fine, but when things start to go wrong, when chinks start to appear, when cracks start to get exposed, the feelings of shame and guilt about those inner feelings of deficit that we feel being revealed publicly is really, really intense. And so it's re- that's a really important thing you brought up there because that's exactly where perfectionism starts. And if we can understand that, we can start to unpack why it is that perfectionism creates so many psychological problems and also doesn't help us in terms of our performances. So it's really the starting point of perfectionism that's so important to understanding why it's such a problem. And also when I think of perfectionism, I mean, I, I think I've been quite fortunate that I don't think I've, I mean, I, I've carried a lot of shame over the years and had low self-confidence and, I mean, I don't know, a smorgasbord of stuff that goes along with mental health difficulties. But perfectionism never seemed to be a symptom for me, really. But it also seems to me that perfectionism is something that's unattainable for a number of reasons. One, I'm not quite sure what perfect is. So I'm wondering if, people's definitions of of perfection for themselves varies and two you're just set up to fail so one is engaging in something that's that ultimately you are going to fail in because there's no such thing as perfect I think although I'm sure the mind with sort of skewed thinking will will think that so it's 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 almost like self-flagellation in a way A hundred percent. It's very self-defeating. Perfectionism encompasses a lot of self-defeating thoughts. Let's put it this way. If your starting point of your whole psychology, and this is very much the case for me uh, when I was younger, was that I'm not good enough, that I don't feel 
like a person of worth in this world because inherently I know that I'm imperfect and everyone around me seems to be perfect. They just seem to be smashing it so effortlessly. And I know deep down that I'm just not the same. Then you go through the world with this kind of sense that I have to then be approved of because in order for me to get recognized and the approval I so dearly need, I need to be perfect. And as exactly what you just said there, we set ourselves up for the very things that we're afraid of because by setting ourselves perfect standards and goals and expectations, we set ourselves up for failure. Those things are inherently unattainable. So we feel more inadequate, lower self-esteem, more anxious. And to overcompensate for those feelings, we set even higher goals. And you can begin to see how this starts to really get entrenched as a cycle of self-defeat that sets perfectionists up for the failure that they are intently sensitive to. And I think this is, again, one of the things I'm trying to impress on the book, that this is why perfectionism is so, so damaging, because it starts to get us into this cycle and left unchecked, left untreated, that can create some really significant mental health problems. And I think it's so, so important to realise for perfectionists that perfectionism and perfectionistic thinking is almost like a bottomless pit that will always deplete us in its pursuit while the answer to that deeper question am I ever enough will always remain unanswered and I suppose I try to talk about it like chasing the horizon you know the closer you get the further it gets from your reach and I think this is something that perfectionists do all the time I include myself in this we set ourselves really high goals. And even if we don't quite meet them, we still find ourselves achieving, but we can't recognize that achievement mm. because we feel like there's always something else to do or there's another goal to set or the better we do, the better we're expected to do. So exactly as you said, is this an extremely self-defeating uh, way of moving through the world? And it's sort of encouraged by society, no? Absolutely. You know, yes. like have this perfect house, have this perfect partner, look a perfect way have the perfect garden, have the perfect car. I mean, it could just go on, couldn't it? <laughs> I think one of the most profound things that's, you know, that I really arrived at when writing the book was that perfectionism is really built in. It's a built-in way of thinking. And I don't think we quite truly understand how built-in that feeling is. And I'll tell you why. Our economy spins on an axis of consumption and work. That's to say growth. Now, if we were to feel content, if we were to be happy with a good enough standard of life, we would stop consuming and we'd stop working as hard. Now, if we did those things, the economy would soon find itself in a recession because the reduction in spending would mean business have to close, jobs are lost, right? So the whole of the economy, the whole of our society, the very fabric of our society is really held up by our perfectionism. Yeah. Like this, our sense that we need to be more, we need to have more, we need to do more, we need to consume more. And so this kind of deficit thinking that's at the root of our perfectionism, it really is kind of the, the rocket fuel of our entire economy. And this kind of fixation on growth is really a, a, an epiphany for me in terms of trying to understand why we're seeing these exploding levels of perfectionism. And I think it's exactly as you said, it's a very built in feeling that many of us feel because we're supposed to feel it. In many ways, rising perfection is evidence that the system is working. The system of capitalism. The system of capitalism, but I would I would caution and I'd say a growth at all costs brand of uh, capitalism. Mm, mm. Uh, you know, I'm not an anti-capitalist, but what I am is a growth at all costs anti-capitalist, if that's a thing. Because you can use the market system to do some exceptional things to improve quality of life. But if the only thing you're fixated on 
in a society is growth mainly measured in, in you know products and services what you tend to find is that we will chase those those numbers at all costs at the cost of our health at the cost of the planet and at the cost of communities and you know human needs so i think perfectionism is definitely an indication that there's an issue at a societal level that the expectations for more better bigger faster stronger are having a big impact on our psyche and while i'm hearing you i'm thinking it seems like this perfectionism can be perpetuated and continue in its sort of cycle in lots of different areas. So, for example, if I think of friends in our lives or acquaintances, it's almost like everyone's perpetuating this illusion of perfectionism. Because one, if we are looking at these people and thinking that they're perfect, <laughs> so projecting that onto them, or we're thinking that they're looking at us we're projecting what they're thinking of us, which I know you, you talk about in the book. There doesn't seem to be any room for vulnerability, true intimacy, and maybe true honesty. And so, for example, I came off Instagram, I think actually it was about a year ago, pretty much to the day, because I would see people and I'd think, oh gosh, they're having a perfect life. Look at their life, they've just got it all. And through that, I would see what I'm not, what I'm lacking. You know, it would make me what I perceived I lacked and I realized that it was just all nonsense yeah so do you think that if we were more vulnerable with each other and more intimate then maybe the perfectionist sort of trap and illusion would be dropped social media is just as everyone knows is really not on the most part that intimate and open and honest what you're saying is is so true there are individual solutions to managing perfectionism of course they are but the fact that perfectionism is on the rise suggests that something is going wrong in society that's creating those feelings and therefore that calls for collective action and there are many things that we can do but the biggest one is to try and kind of return society to those kind of human needs connection intimacy relationships allowing ourselves to show our common humanity which is our imperfect common humanity that to allow space for that let that in and you know this kind of world that we live in where you have to continually grow and you have to continually prove yourself worthy, whether that be through the material things you own, the lifestyles you lead, the way you look, the work that you do, the productivity that you're making, all of these things push against that common humanity, that common sense that actually we're just human. At the end of the day, we're just human and all humans are flawed. All humans are imperfect, exhaustible creatures. And this society pushes us against this very intrinsic needs to be able to as you say be vulnerable be intimate and be open and honest and i think as a society we do need to start to talk about that how the way the world works right now pushes against those needs and make us feel you know they alienate ourselves from ourselves they make us feel like we have to be somebody else somebody perfect and that takes us away from who we really are and that creates an incredible conflict incredible tension because all the time we're going through life trying to pretend trying to be somebody else Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And what a liberating thing, and I want to ask you sort of what we can do to sort of get out of this perfectionism trap, but what a wonderful thing 
to free oneself and give oneself permission to not be perfect. Oh my goodness me. That's <laughs> like, how amazing. There is one of the things, uh, a very famous psychoanalyst called Karen Horney, master clinician back in the 30s or 40s, and she said the purpose of therapy is to return the patient to themselves. And what she meant by that was to allow the individual to reconnect with themselves in a way that they sense an unparalleled joy of just being with themselves and all of themselves and all of their feelings in the natural environment. We can experience ourselves, you know, let's say, you know, when you feel like an intimate love for someone for the first time, or just observe children, even the poorest of just being there with themselves and their feelings and the joy of just being alive. It is within us to experience those things. It's there, but we're just not allowed to access them because we have to be constantly searching for more. And if more of our lives could be lived in that moment with all of ourselves and all of our feelings, imagine how much joy we would experience or how much more joy we would experience. That's not to say you can live completely in that nirvana all the time you can't it's not possible but the more we can reconnect with ourselves and the more regularity we can feel that joy the happier our lives will be and i'm wondering how perfectionism plays out within family so for example parenting being the perfect parent yes so we're seeing a lot of that at the moment so a lot of my research has tried to unpack what's going on on the family level and what we're seeing is young people reporting high levels of expectations that they feel are being placed in them by their parents and that's translating into their own perfectionism because they're interpreting those higher expectations as expectations to be perfect i would say though that it's quite normal and natural in this culture for parents to look out into the world see how much pressure there is see dwindling social mobility see how competitive it is to get into the colleges that is necessary to get into the elite professions and think goodness me i'm gonna have to push because if I don't, the consequences could be quite catastrophic in terms of future life chances for my child. So first of all, no blame here, but it is happening and we are seeing that and it is being translated into higher expectations and perfectionism among kids. And what's worrying about that is that they will then take that forward into their own parenting and so on and so on and so on. So what we're worried about here is not so much the perfection going up, but what that means in terms of the intergenerational dynamics where we're going to see perfectionism rise, more perfectionism being passed on, which, which creates a kind of upward spiral. And so that's why talking about it now, I think is so important. And I'm thinking of, I suppose, that well-known phrase of the last maybe 10 years, helicopter parenting, but also perhaps if someone's parents are making love contractual so you know you must hit certain grades to get the reward of my love or, or perhaps parents are not really emotionally validating their children so you know that can breed perfectionism going forward because I guess into adulthood you're still wanting to gain the love of your parents by being perfect and other people too you're exactly right this is and how other people the... yes and this is how the dynamic unfolds. So what you have when you set higher expectations is kind of a deferral of full approval on the implicit basis that you continue to do more. So what we're seeing is not kind of withholding of level approval per se. Parents would never do that. But what we tend to see. Well, is some do. Some some do. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That's very. Don't, very let, true. don't let them off that line. <laughs> that's very, very true. You're absolutely right. Some absolutely do. Yeah. Um, but as, I'm, I suppose I'm talking in the main. What we see is something a little bit more subtle. Absolutely right. Should clarify. There's some parents that would just do a full withdrawal of level approval when things haven't 
and gone well. But what we see more often is a more subtle form of that condition, what we call conditional regard, whereby essentially what you see is kind of high expectations and they're kind of a, a praise, you know, well done, very good. However, keep doing more, keep doing better, keep going. And that kind of, that means that the full sort of unqualified approval is put on hold or suspended until more is done and better is done. And this goes back to this idea that, you know, there's always more to do. So there's kind of, there's this suspension of full unqualified approval that you start to see when it, parents set ever higher expectations. And what you've described there is exactly the dynamic of what plays on a psychological level, because if we feel like we have to continue to do more to gain the full unqualified approval of our parents, what we are essentially being told is that we're not worthy of praise or approval unless we continue to strive. And so we become dependent, therefore, on excessive expectations that we set ourselves because we feel that's the only way to gain the love and approval of the people in our lives that we require that love and approval from. It's, you know, very human need to want to feel connected and approved of, particularly by our parents. As I mentioned, that can create perfectionistic tendencies and need to be perfect for other people's approval. And not just from our parents, by the way, but just from people in general, kind of dependency on their love and validation for us to feel good about ourselves. And that can create quite a significant psychological problems as, as young people age so you're absolutely right that kind of conditionality of regard is is so so crucial to perfectionism here's something that's occurred to me tom what about pressure within school because we're talking about what parents can do we're talking about a wider society thing but are schools do they bear some responsibility for the rise in perfectionism people have to go through a lot of sort of different exams and things like that Oh, absolutely. There's so many standardised tests these days and we have SATs, GCSEs, A-levels that young people have to take. And in between those, there's mock exams and class-based assessments and homework and all the rest of it. And if you go to the US, it's even worse. I mean, they have hundreds of standardised tests almost on a weekly basis for young people. It's really unrelenting. There is absolutely no doubt that, one, this is creating a lot of pressure on young people. It's forcing them to think about their value in terms of metric. What did they score? So they overvalue the metric, they undervalue themselves. But also what's really interesting is it's not even necessary. Because if you look at other countries like Finland, for example, where kids there don't do any tests in the primary school years and only when they get to secondary school do they do the bare minimum tests. That's the kind of STEM PISA testing and all the rest of their education is really about learning exploring you know prioritizing the kind of joy in the learning itself and having more time to explore concepts without the kind of sword of Damocles of the assessment hanging over them what's really interesting about that is that these kids in Finland do no worse than the kids in the US or the UK who are bombarded with assessments all the time. So in terms of, you know, bang for buck, like what are you getting out for the input that you're putting in? Finnish children have a much better experience and less pressurized experience. So you don't even need all these tests. There's certainly an issue here for young people because when they meet me at university, I mean, they are just frazzled. You can tell the system has really worn them down and, you know, their perfectionism didn't really need any more energy, but then they get to university and they're tested even more. So it's the crazy system. It's definitely contributing to perfectionism. And I think one of the chapters I dedicate to in the book really is, is this kind of incessant testing and how we really need to rethink it. I'm going to give a little example of my own watching of my perfectionism. I'm getting rid of a car that I've got. And I actually love this car. And I purposely check in because materialism 
we all know what that is. But I actually do get a lot out of cars, always have done. However, I'm now changing it for an electric car because it just makes more sense and it's better for the environment and it will cost me way less money. But one of the things that I've struggled with is people look at me when I'm in my car that I've got at the moment and think, yeah, that's the kind of car a pop star has. So that's someone who's successful. They have that car. You know, it looks successful. And now I'm going to a crappy little secondhand electric thing. And people might not think that. So I'm sharing that because I'm very forgiving of myself having those feelings. And I'm also, I've done enough work on myself to know that you're making those things up. You don't even know if people are thinking that. And who cares? But it's just an example of I'm 44 years old and I still have to sometimes watch what I'm doing things for. Am I actually doing this for me? Or am I trying to sort of seem perfect to the world? Mm -hmm. You know, got to be vigilant about these things. Absolutely. It's a lot of pressure to impression manage. As I mentioned earlier, I can't even imagine what it must be like to live in the spotlight and have all of these pressures. It must be intense. I think it's an extension of how a lot of us can live, though. Are you really getting that house because you want the house? Or do you just want to, like, impress the Joneses? You know, so the more we check in with ourselves as to why we're really doing stuff and having stuff and how we're living our lives, just always make sure who you're doing it for. Absolutely. Yeah. The reason that goes underneath why we do anything is the most important thing. If we're doing it for purpose, joy and things that, you know, make us feel truly happy, then that's great. But if we're doing it as an extension of our impression management, then yes, like you say, it's something to think about maybe twice about doing. Well, exactly. To hang on to something that's costing one a lot of money just because I'm projecting what other people might be thinking about me isn't a reason to hang on to it. And also, I'm reading a little bit here, which I just really liked. When people in the 1970s were asked what the good life meant, they tended to respond with things like a happy marriage, children, fulfilling job, and doing something that improves society. When the same question was posed to people in the 1990s, they responded with things like holiday home, new television, God, this is depressing, trendy clothes, and loads of money. Yeah. That's terrifying. I mean, that just shows you the shifting values of people in a new economy, in a new society that kind of lionizes expressions of perfection in our lives and lifestyles that are typically material things. And, you know, that's because essentially everything in our society now has a kind of monetizable cure. So any problems that we have in our lives are filled by material things even the psychopharmaceuticals treating things like anxiety and depression but also in our relationships through subscription apps everything has you know these kind of really intimate human needs are now filled by a material product because everything is taken over by the market and i think those changing values are really indicative of that shift and that young people are seeing their lives their personalities being expressed through those material things which are really plugging gaps. Uh, there's a really good quote by a psychotherapist can't, can't bring to mind at the moment, who said, whenever we are excessive in our lives, in terms of you know, material excess, it is a sign of some inner deprivation. And that's really what's going on here. We're plugging a kind of sense of the need that we matter. We have a value in the world that we're worth something through this buying of these material things, when really what's most important is that we're able to reconnect with that kind of need to feel enough. Uh, and we live in a world that just doesn't allow us to feel that. And I think that's really sad. Well, let's end on, on a more of a positive note, because we can talk about ways that you can tackle perfectionism. 
So first of all, I guess, on the individual level, how can we tackle our own perfectionism? So there's a few things we can do. I think really the most important thing is to try as far as we can to accept our common humanity and accept ourselves. That's a broad philosophy, but there are many ways that we can do that. One is to move through the life more compassionately and make sure that we treat ourselves and other people with kindness at all times. If we've slipped up or screwed up, a presentation or a task at work or a coursework assignment in our in our schooling every time that happens treat ourselves with kindness make sure that we tell ourselves that it's okay there's always next time this isn't the disaster that we think it is that's so so important the second thing is to challenge our perfectionism in, in really important ways so for instance if we struggle with image management we're trying to create a perfect image of ourselves try to kind of just test that belief a little bit let's say we're worried about how we look maybe in a public realm so put yourself out to do a talk at work for instance push your comfort zone a little bit and observe what happens sit with that anxiety of not being perfect for that moment and let it in don't try and squash it <laughs> don't for goodness sake like try to put it off procrastinate and move it away from our from our thought process actually experience it and in that moment you realize that those worries you harbor are really just worries of, of your perfect self, the self that's trying to be someone else in someone else's mind's eye. And actually the impact and the result of the talk not going so well, for instance, going back to the talk example, is not as catastrophic as we think it is. You know, if we give a bad talk, it isn't the end of the world. And actually it teaches us something really important about ourselves that you know, we're not going to nail everything first time. Life is a learning process and a journey. So I would encourage listeners to take really small steps to challenge their perfectionism in ways that are important to them. The things that they really struggle with and worry about being publicly exposed in, push yourself out a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. And you'll find that the more you can do that, the more comfortable you become showing yourself, the less power that perfectionism will have over you. And I think the third thing in this is really, really important is to recognize that failure is humanizing. It's not humiliating. And it's really important to make sure that you don't, you know, kind of instantly recoil from those moments of fear and try to turn them into growth, right? This is something we do all the time. We say, okay, I failed. I need to learn. I need to grow. I need to do better. I need to make sure it doesn't happen. Because what's that saying is that that there's something shameful about that failure. And we have to recycle it instantly into something else, anything else that gets us away from thinking about the fear that we encountered. And sometimes in life that, you know, for no good reason, we just fail got out of bed the wrong side, the bus was late, we came up against someone more privileged or whatever. Like we, there's things that we just cannot do about these things. And there's very little we can learn in those values. And I think it's so, so important. Instead of trying to worry about how we can grow from it, it's to let it in and almost let it wash through as a kind of joyous reminder of what it means to be a human being. Like this is what being human is all about. Mm. It's about recognizing that we are fallible. So I think those are things at an individual level that have really helped me. And I think they can help listeners to push through the perfection trap. And if you're a parent, what are the things that perhaps you could do to sort of, well, support your kids and not have them going into the sort of perfectionism trap? So I think the most important thing for parents to do is unconditional love, approval, regard is so, so, so important. You can have expectations for young people. You can want them to do well. 
And they will respond to that positively, provided that those expectations and aspirations are realistic and provided no matter what happens, whether they've done well or whether they haven't done quite so well, that you treat them with the same amount of love and affection as you would in any other course of life. And I think it's particularly important to maintain that love and affection when things haven't gone well. That's so, so crucial. So let's say your child didn't do as well as they wanted to do uh, in school. Right. They got a bad mark for their assessment. Now, a lot of children will really take that personally and they will worry about it. And it's so, so important that most parents, you, you let them know that it's OK, that this is an indictment on you. It doesn't make you any less valuable in your parents' eyes or the teacher's eyes. It's just one bad grade in among hundreds of other possible grades that you will get in your schooling career. It doesn't say anything about you. There are many different ways to learn and there are many different assessments that you'll do and just keep loving them, just keep loving them. And I think that's really, for me, so, so important because children will respond to intermittent responses to failure. You know, sometimes you praise them, sometimes you don't. They're, they're, they're very clever and they will they will learn very quickly if you know it's not good enough and that they need to do more so i think that's so so important to remember when you're parenting unconditional love and approval and finally i suppose perhaps there might be some managers listening who are in the workplace how could they sort of go about creating a sort of safe culture in the workplace for themselves and the employees and their business I think it's really crucial. We know young people are becoming more perfectionists. We're seeing that in the data. So, you know, more and more young people that come into your organizations will be struggling with perfectionism. And from the get-go, really, it's important to make them feel safe. Safe that they, you know, no question is a stupid question. The whole point of, you know, whatever it is that we're doing is to learn, develop, grow. The whole point of innovation and creating things is that there's going to be times when we fail. There's going to be projects that get off the ground and then grind to a halt. There are going to be moments in time where you're going to slip up or, I don't know, make, make a mistake in the coding. And that's going to be a problem. But the most important thing is to be open and honest about it so we can address it quickly. This idea of psychological safety, I think, in organizations is so important. You've got to remember, you've hired these people because they have the credentials. They've got background skills that you value. So they come in competent. And it's really important to make sure that you allow them to express those competencies and contribute to your team in the best possible way. And they're not going to do that with perfectionism. So putting too much pressure on them is not going to help. Allowing them to feel safe and show themselves will provide for far more happiness and better performance. So that's really important for leaders. Well, Tom, I think this has been an absolutely wonderful conversation. And I don't say this very often, but thank you so much for writing this book. Oh, thank you so much. I think people will get so much from it because you're learning from your own experiences. You're curious and empathetic to it. And you're delivering something for the wider world, which I just think is kind of what life's about really otherwise what's the point that's true thank you well i appreciate that my pleasure i'd highly recommend the book and take care take care well thank you that was thomas curran i'd really recommend his book by the way and i think he knows his stuff and i like people like him see a problem see it themselves investigate it try and change the world for the better now, perfectionism, I think a lot of people do struggle with. So do let us know what you thought about. Maybe you resonated trying to be a perfect parent. Maybe your parents wanted you to be perfect. Maybe you chastise yourself. Maybe you have too high standards for other people that they're never going to achieve. Oh, it's sounding like a proper phone in, isn't it, Amy? Uh, but do call in to this number. 
<laughs> no, get in touch and let us know what you thought. So, obviously, no one can be perfect. I'm now going to do our letter section perfectly for you. <laughs> I'm laughing at my own joke. It's tragic. If you come and see my play, you'll see that I laugh at my own jokes actually on stage, which is hysterical, at the Habster Theatre. Hey, Will, just listen to the episode on communication. I always believe relationships work well if there was communication. I would agree with that. If you can't talk to your other half, then the relationship's no good. I'm single and have been for four years now, as I have issues with trust in relationships due to being badly hurt, not just physically, but also mentally. This has stopped me from finding someone to have a relationship with for the fear that history may repeat itself. Well, I'm not surprised that you have that. Just want to validate that. And this episode really made you feel better. Well, thank you. I'm pleased. And uh, yeah, not surprised you feel like that. Honour those feelings is what I would say. Uh, Dear Will. And Amy, loved the episode on communication. Any relationship is so hard, especially with a dysregulated nervous system. Amen to that. You really have to be selective if relationships are toxic. My nervous system will definitely tell me through my chronic pain and stomachache. Ah, same. Yeah, I don't get chronic pain or stomachaches unless I've eaten a lot of pasta. But uh, my nervous system does tell me about people as well. So we listen to that. Dear Will, the episode on forest bathing was a really lovely episode. Wasn't it just... Felt the calm of the woods and of you coming through the oral waves. Thank you. Love that it talked about how nature is good for us, but also us then learning to love and look after nature too. Yeah, I liked it as well. I just thought they were the best. To be honest, I felt like I was in a Mike Lee film for the entire thing in a really good way. I was talking to someone about it the other day. It was just, I didn't want to leave. It's short to the point, Amy, but I think it's good. Love listening to your podcast. So informative and helping so many people. Thank you. Well, thank you. As ever, if you want to get in touch, email hello at wellbeinglabpodcast.com, Twitter at the Wellbeing Lab, Instagram and Facebook at the Wellbeing Lab Podcast. Next week, it's mental health inequalities. I'm off to tread the boards in Hampstead because I am a thespian. Ya, boo, hurrah. Goodbye. Did you know the Wellbeing Lab is produced by Audio AF and is part of the ACAST Creator Network? It's true. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.